Reasonable Faith, Lesson 2, The Presence of Sin, presented by Pastor James McIntyre. Pastor McIntyre here. Just thank you for coming back to the table, allowing us to continue our Bible study of reasonable faith. Just as a short review, in video one, we uh, spent some time thinking about the nature of sin. We basically covered three areas. We covered uh, the uh, sin defined and that sin, according to the Bible, is a transgression of God's law. So when we violate God's law, we violate, for example, the Ten Commandments, then we have sinned. We talked about sin inherited and how that Adam, who is the father of us all, when he was placed in the garden, God gave him one command. He put a prohibition in place concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam violated that um, that command, and he became a sinner and a transgressor, and uh, the the uh, impact of that has been felt in all of his children, including us. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, for as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so we... Um, we, as a result of that, we uh, are conceived in sin. Our nature is to sin and go at odds with God, and our inclination and our propensities are in that direction. And then we considered sin abhorred, and we just looked at a few verses that talked about and revealed to us God's view of sin and of the wicked and the unrighteous, and it clearly was not a very favorable uh, presentation that we had there. God is very much um, uh, angered about sin. He's very much displeased with it, and uh, he does not view it lightly. We may at times tend to minimize it and not think very seriously about it, but uh, when we break God's law, God takes that very, very seriously. And so that's kind of where we left off in video one. Here in the second video, we want to talk about the presence of sin. And again, there are three important areas to consider under this heading. The first is the fact that sin is a universal problem. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, "...for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." And uh, in all my years of ministry, I have discovered that when you begin to talk about sin, uh, people generally will readily admit that we're all sinners. In fact, um, oftentimes when you're talking to people in a personal way about their sin and about the fact that they're a sinner, oftentimes people will say things such as, well, we're, we're all sinners. And, and that is indeed the case. That is a true statement. But uh, oftentimes I feel as though it's stated in a sense to uh, minimize their own guilt. You know, it's kind of like, well, if everybody's guilty of it, then it can't be that bad. And I can't can't be singled out and and uh, you know uh, there's I can't be held especially responsible since we're all guilty of it but uh, that's probably not an accurate view. Uh, the reality is, is that as individuals, we'll stand before God, we'll give an account of God for ourselves and not for anybody else. But again, the general prince, uh, the general uh, premise that people willingly accept is that we are all sinners. But that does include me. That does include you. And we've come short of the glory of God. God put a law in place. We violate that law. We transgress that law. And we consequently come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. There's not a man anywhere that has not sinned. And then 
you go over to uh, the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So the Bible says that the Lord looks down and says they're all corrupt. All men are corrupt. Says they've done abominable works. That's one term that he uses. In another place, he says in these verses, they're all together become filthy. These are words when we hear them, abominable, filthy. And our immediate response tends to be, well, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I might not be perfect, but I'm not an abominable person. I might not do everything right, but I'm not a filthy person. And so it's important that we realize that this is being stated from God's perspective. This is what God sees. This isn't what our parents see. This isn't what our children see, what our friends see, our coworkers see. It's not even what we see related to ourselves. It's what God sees in us. And if you think about it, the whole idea of being abominable and being filthy from God's perspective, if he set in place a law, which he had every right to do as the creator, and then we violate that law, then clearly the times when we do that, we would be guilty of an abominable work. Surely if we violated and transgressed the law of God, that would uh, rise to the level of being filthy. Certainly from God's perspective, that would be true. In fact, in in these verses here in Psalms, he says at the end there in verse 3, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Again, it's a matter of perspective. We might be able to look around, people in our families, people that we know, neighbors, whatever the case may be, and say this is a good person, this is a good woman, this is a good man. And it's all relevant, rel- uh, uh, relative, because um, good compared to lots of other people, no doubt that's the case. But when God says there's none that doeth good, no, not one, he's not comparing us to each other. He's comparing us to himself. And more importantly, he's comparing us to the standard of his law. And so when you consider that, and as we spoke of in the previous video, that all have violated God's law, that we've all broken the Ten Commandments, then it makes a little more sense why God would say there's none that doeth good, no, not one. And uh, you go back over to Romans chapter 3. And verse 11, verse 10, right in there, the Bible says, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So once again, we discover that um, the Bible is very clear. The declaration is very clear. God's testimony about this is very clear, that there's none that understands when it comes to spiritual things. There's none that seek after God. We may convince ourselves at times that we are, but the Bible says there's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're to become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. In fact, this uh, these verses right here are taken right out of Psalms chapter 14, where we just read. You may have noticed the similarity between the two. So when we were in Psalms, it's not something that can be dismissed as just some kind of a harsh sentiment from uh, uh, from an old, from the Old Testament that uh, when God was different, that's not the case. That same sentiment is brought into the New Testament, and uh, it is brought forward for our consideration and for us to realize that what was true uh, when the Psalms were being written about a thousand years before Jesus was also true in the first century when the book of Romans was being written, and it is still true today.
In fact, the Bible tells us here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, again, we could just think about it in the context of the Ten Commandments, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. So God gave us his law so that our mouths could be stopped. We look at the Ten Commandments. God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm guilty. That's not been true of my life, certainly not all the time. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Guilty. Thou shalt honor thy father and mother. Guilty. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And we look at all these things, and all we can really do is just be silenced, and our mouth has to be stopped. We realize that we have indeed transgressed the law of God. In fact, he goes on in that verse 19 and says that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So the purpose of the law is to manifest our guilt. It is to remind us. It is to enhance our guilt. Our conscience already bears witness against us. Most oftentimes that is the case, although we can do things that would abate that. But our conscience bears testimony against us. But then the law of God comes in, and it strengthens conscience, and it tells us that indeed these things are wrong, and we ought to live a certain way, and not just because our conscience condemns us when we don't, but in fact, God requires this of us. And so when we look at the law of God and we we realize that we violated the law of God, then we know that we're guilty. So sin is a universal problem. All men are guilty before God because we've all, every last one of us, have violated the commands of God. But sin is also a miserable condition. There's a curious verse in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5 when the passage is dealing with Moses in the Old Testament. And it says of Moses that he choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I always find it interesting and just brutally honest when it says that he chose affliction rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Because what it acknowledges is that there is a degree of pleasure in sin. And I think um, this is self-evident. This is a reasonable truth. We all know this to be the case. If there wasn't an, uh, if there wasn't an element of a, uh, there wasn't something appealing about sin. If there wasn't an element of pleasure in sin, um, we likely wouldn't do those things. We likely wouldn't break the commands of God. But there's a sense in which it can bring pleasure. But it is the pleasures of sin for a season. It doesn't last forever. Um, it does have an expiration date on it. Usually, it's very short lived and consequently we have to continue to go back over and over again to get the same pleasure to enjoy the same pleasure to live the same pleasure over this is true with so many things uh, as it relates to immorality and drugs and alcohol and and all of these things food and and uh, illicit entertainment and all the things that we have to just keep going back to to keep the pleasure flowing but again it's just temporary not only in the short term but even in the long term it's a miserable condition really Sin is addictive. We become addicted to it, and um, and it's a miserable condition. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15, the Bible says, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. And it is a transgressor, one who violates God's law. When you violate God's law, it's a hard way to live. When God isn't put first in our life, it creates difficulty for us. When we take the name of God in vain, it creates problems for us. When we lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, when we 
tell lies. All of these things commit uh, uh, create difficulties for us. It makes life harder than it needs to be. It makes it harder than it ought to be. And all of this for a little short-term pleasure. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 22, the Bible says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. This is God's assessment of it. And while uh, many people may go about their lives and seem to uh, have it all together and seem to be uh, very fulfilled and have joy and peace, uh, the reality is is that if you're wicked and you're a violator of God's law and that issue has not been addressed in your life, that there is no peace. There really is. Another place in Proverbs, the Bible says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. It's just because of that nagging guilt that we can never get away from, that we've not lived right, that we've not done right that we've messed up, that we have uh, not lived in a way that would be pleasing to God. And in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And again, indeed, we all know this to be true. We know it to be true in our own lives. We know it to be true in the lives of others oftentimes. There's just no peace to the wicked. And we are. The wicked is oftentimes like the troubled sea. You know, you violate the commands of God. It creates problems. It creates issues in your life. And rather than repent and turn back to God, people uh, continue to go their own way. They continue to figure out their own way to, to deal with the trouble that their sin has created. And oftentimes in the process, it just ends up creating more problems. And their life does indeed become like a troubled sea whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So sin is a miserable condition. It's miserable in the short term. I mean, if you just take away all of the eternal consequences, which we'll deal with later, it's miserable in the short term. In this life, it makes this life more unpleasant. And it's also a present condemnation. Sin is a present condemnation. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil." So many of us are familiar with verse 16, but I'd like to draw your attention to the next verse. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. People love to latch onto that, and they use it as a justification and to be able to argue, listen, if Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, why should anyone else be condemning the world? Does anybody really have the authority or the right to condemn me? Does anybody have the authority to condemn anyone else? And indeed, it does say that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But the very next phrase in that same verse is, but that the world through him might be saved. My question for you today is, why do we need to be saved? Might it be because we're already condemned? Maybe Jesus doesn't condemn the world because the world has already been condemned and it needs to be saved. In fact, the very next verse says, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So the reality is, is that if you've never come to a place where you've repented of your sin 
and trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's not another thing you've got to do to be condemned. You have already violated the law of God. You're a transgressor. You have broken the law of God over and over and over again, and you are condemned already. It's important to recognize that. In fact, down at the end of John chapter 3, in fact, I think it's the last verse in uh, verse 36, it says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's important to recognize that if we don't know the Lord, if we've never been truly saved, if we've never had our lives changed by Jesus Christ, then the wrath of God is abiding on us. God's wrath is present with us today. And although we may not feel the full fury of it, the reality is is that if you don't know the Lord, if you've never been saved, if you haven't believed on Jesus and repented of your sins, you're one breath away from the wrath of God being unleashed upon you. You are one heartbeat away from God's wrath being poured out in the full measure of its power upon you because of sin. And I know these are sobering words. I know that um, they may be making some of you uncomfortable. But, you know, we've got to believe what God says. We can't just believe the good things, the pleasant things, the smooth things. We need to know and understand and believe even the difficult things. And it's important that we recognize that if we haven't believed on the Son, and because we're violators of God's law and we're transgressors, the wrath of God abides on us. And it's important to recognize this. These are sobering things. Our desire is for you to be right with God. And you know the thing is, and we're going to get to this in time in a couple of videos, but there's answers to all of this. It's not like this is the end of the story, but it is the beginning of the story. And unless we familiarize ourselves with the beginning of the story and we embrace and accept and believe the beginning of the story, the end of the story has much less meaning to us. So this is where it all starts, this discussion about sin and condemnation and being wicked and being unrighteous and transgressors of God's law and that sin is a universal problem and that it is a miserable condition and that it is a present condemnation. But God God has an answer for all of this, and we're excited in due course to share that with you. We're concerned about your soul. We're genuinely concerned that you have the assurance that things are right between you and God, and not just because you hope so, but because you know so, and because your knowledge and your assurance and your confidence is rooted in the sure truths of the Word of God. This is what we desire. This is why we're sharing these things with you, because we want you to know the peace that's available ultimately through God and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the next lesson, we're going to search the Scriptures to determine the end of sin. Where does sin ultimately lead? This is a question that's of utmost importance. It's vital that we have knowledge of where a life of sin ends and that we soberly consider it and that we that we don't just set it aside and we don't just dismiss it out of hand, but that we soberly consider. So we're going to spend some time talking about that in the next lesson. 
This is Pastor McIntyre. I appreciate so much you listening and pray that we'll see you back at this table again to consider to continue this Bible study, A Reasonable Faith. Thank you. This podcast was presented by Pastor James McIntyre, edited by Caleb McIntyre, and formatted for podcast by Jonathan McIntyre. A Reasonable Faith is an independent production of Faith Baptist Church in Freeport, Texas. For more information, visit www.areasonablefaith.org.